Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Serge Ginsberg from Einstein Healthcare Network talking about transperineal prostate biopsy. My name is John Drevik. I'm a PGY2 at uh, Einstein Medical Center here in Philadelphia. Uh, it's our pleasure to have uh, Dr. Serge Ginsberg, who's um, one of our urolo- urological oncologists here, to give a talk about uh, transperineal biopsies uh, today. So um, uh, for that, I'll kick it over to you, Dr. Ginsberg. Thank you, John. Um, and uh, I'd like to thank uh, UCSF and the collaborative to help uh, to um, uh, recognize the the need for resident education even during these uh, COVID crises, and uh, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to give this lecture. I also want to really thank the residents for um, you know being there on the front lines and taking care of patients during these crazy times. So thank you again. Uh, so today's talk is going to focus on transperineal prostate biopsy. It's um, a quickly emerging and is quickly being adopted throughout the world. And uh, it's really important to kind of get the details on this and see if we can uh, disseminate that amongst our practices. So um, I have no disclosures. And um, today what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to cover uh, evolution and adoption of transperineal prostate biopsy, uh, perceptions about it, its functional outcomes and oncologic outcomes. We're gonna discuss uh, technical aspects of transperineal biopsy, including setup, positioning, analgesia, uh, access options, as well as uh, different templates that are out there. Uh, I'm gonna show a short video, uh, hopefully detailing some of the techniques, and um, there will be some time for questions as well. So let's get started. So to better understand the scope of uh, this problem, uh, this is kind of, um, prostate cancer um, landscape, if you will. So about up to $19 billion are spent in US alone on prostate cancer care, 19 billion. So prostate cancer has a huge footprint in our healthcare system. About 30 million tests, PSA tests are being performed as screening and surveillance and follow-up for prostate cancer. Um, The number of prostate biopsies that take place across the United States, that number is a little bit hard to pin down, but you know, numbers around a million a year are quoted in the literature. And uh, approximately 190 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer annually, of which 33,000 die. So, you know, we're dealing with a big, with with a big problem here. And um, our discussion is going to focus on this number one here, right here, 1 million biopsies and we'll see if we can improve um, our role in that number. So evolution of transperineal prostate biopsy. Um, You know, it has evolved, it has come, I'd say, full circle. So it started initially with um, open transperineal access uh, where you would cut down above the rectum towards the prostate and uh, sample the prostate. Um, that was somewhat invasive and, uh, it then progressed to, you know, developing a needle that would be able to travel transperineally, okay, outside the rectum, um, towards an area that was felt suspicious on a digital rectal exam. So it's kind of finger guided transperineal prostate biopsy. And that's the kind of the image that you see here on the left. Um, over time it, uh, has evolved, uh, to a finger-guided transrectal approach with uh, different safety mechanisms being developed, but um, ultimately it was still finger-guided until um, in 1970s and 1980s, uh, the ultrasound technology was developed um, developed well enough to be able to um, image the prostate uh, sufficiently. So it initially was used um, as an imaging modality, but then it was used for biopsy guidance. And again, um, that was transrectal ultrasound guided prostate biopsy. Uh, Until eventually we recognized the advantages of transperineal approach and staying out of the rectum and um, tracking the uh, potentially infectious flora of the rectum into the prostate. 
by by uh, maintaining transperineal access. And so ultimately, where we are now is we're uh, more and more increasing our transperineal approach, and we'll talk about details of of that. So this is this is a paper by Filson and Company, who uh, basically uh, the purpose of this paper was to track MRI adoption and utilization across the urologic community, but uh, in it, uh, it also listed uh, prevalence um, of transperineal prostate biopsy. And you could see that that's that gray dotted line on the bottom. It's relatively flat and it's relatively low. And I kind of translated it into numbers here, but you could see that 0.5% of all biopsies across the United States, according to this market scan uh, database, uh, were done transperineally. So that's that's a very low proportion, okay? And um, that kind of sets the baseline of where we were starting around 2015. Uh, now for, uh, they referenced this paper and I thought it was an important one. They referenced it uh, with respect to MRI adoption, but I think it applies to any te uh, technology dissemination in, in healthcare field or otherwise. And there are some certain drivers that kind of promote, uh, predispose technology to being rolled out and adopted. So firstly, it's the perception of the technology. Does it have a benefit that's important to us? Uh, secondly, it's compatibility. Is it consistent with our values? Are we looking to decrease number of infections? Are we looking to provide better quality care? Is the technology simple, okay? Is it easy to adopt if we had to? And then is the trial of that technology available for us to kind of give it a go without committing to the technology. And then are there other people doing it that we, who we can observe and kind of gain confidence before we bring it into our um, practice? Uh, additionally, you know, there are other important factors such as um, ability to communicate our results. Um, are there incentives for us to adopt this technology? And is our leadership supportive of this technology? Or are, they, or are our funds limited and can we not bring it into our uh, practices. You know, this is kind of the, the curve that we see all the time with respect to dissemination of technology. There are innovators, there are early adopters, there's early majority, late majority, and laggards. So I think, you know, around the world, we're probably in the early adapters category and, and we're racing fast towards the early majority. And hopefully this will come sooner rather than later. So again, um, this is back to uh, Chris Filson's paper. And again, this demonstrates that uh, adoption of transperineal prostate biopsy so far has been very low, but I think times are changing. So uh, we participate in this in Pennsylvania Urologic Regional Collaborative, PERC, and in it, we track our biopsy outcomes and uh, biopsy, um, number of biopsies, et cetera. And uh, what I did is I kind of took some artistic license and then I extended um, the timeline here and what I did is I plotted our PERC numbers. So back in 2018, we're at 1.2% of all biopsies across the collaborative being done transperineally. And in 2019, that number rose to 2.9. And I can only imagine in 2020, that number will be yet higher. So again, I think the, the rollout is happening and uh, it's just a matter of time. So what are some of the perceived uh, benefits and um, kind of uh, limitations of transperineal prostate biopsy. So I think it's widely described that cancer detection rate appears to be on par or better than transrectal biopsy. Uh, you have access to anterior lesions, which are hard to reach through transrectal approach. You have uh, better ability to sample the apex. Um, you also, when sampling peripheral zone, get a full core traveling through the peripheral zone as opposed to just part of the core being in peripheral zone and the other part being in the transitional zone that may be compressing the peripheral zone. Um, infectious complications are clearly superior in the transperineal approach with uh, sepsis rates approaching 0%. It's excellent. Antibiotic stewardship, as we'll discuss, uh, many, many providers are omitting antibiotics during the time of biopsy. And so, you know, with quinolone resistance skyrocketing. I think this is really an important move. Um, rectal bleeding is non-existent and uh, bowel prep sometimes, you know, to minimize infection, some people give uh, betadine 
bowel preps. Uh, others give bowel preps to clean out, um, uh, or bowel, sorry, beta line enemas. And some people prefer patients clean out their bowel uh, just for better visualization. Uh, but, you know, I don't know that that's really necessary. I certainly don't do that in my practice. Um, as far as perceived uh, limitations, the, the, it does require new equipment um, or it may require new equipment. Uh, ultrasound may stay the same if your manufacturer makes a, a, a different type of probe that's conducive to transfer transperineal biopsy uh, approach. And um, so there may not necessarily be a large investment that is required. Lithotomy positioning, we're all familiar with lithotomy positioning in the OR, but visualizing the prostate in lithotomy is a little bit new to us, but it's actually relatively easy and to me more intuitive. Um, it, it is thought that stepper is required. Stepper is not required necessarily for transperineal biopsy and uh, template grid is used for mapping biopsies or uh, uh, sometimes freehand biopsies, but, um, but again, it's not required. Uh, with respect to new techniques, um, there you know, is fear of this uh, learning curve uh, of, of this new approach. But again, as, as we'll discuss, the learning curve is not as challenging as it sounds. Uh, with respect to pain control, it was perceived that this biopsy needs to be done under sedation or general anesthesia. It is absolutely well tolerated under local anesthesia with some practice, and uh, we'll reassure you about that shortly. Uh, and then urinary retention. There does appear to be a slightly higher risk of urinary retention with transperineal approach as opposed to transrectal, but again, the magnitude of this issue is not as bad as it sounds. So let's jump in. So the real problem with transrectal biopsy is sepsis, okay? Um, the prevalence of resistant bacteria is growing and up to 25% of men harbor resistant flora at the time of biopsy, okay? And uh, post-biopsy sepsis rates are described and the concerning thing is they're increasing over time. Similarly, post-biopsy hospitalization rates are increasing, okay? So several steps have been taken by the American Urologic Association and the urologic community in general. Uh, we talk about targeted prophylaxis, which requires a rectal swab uh, prior to biopsy to assess for uh, resistant flora, and then antibiotics are tailored accordingly. Alternatively, augmented prophylaxis, where we add additional stronger antibiotics to decrease the risk of infections are also employed. Now, both of those approaches, you know, escalate antibiotics and therefore uh, further potentiate uh, development of resistance. Now, the impact of uh, these infectious complications is, is very big. So a cost of post-biopsy sepsis episode ranges from between 8,000 and 19,000 in the US and uh, slightly less abroad. Uh, it results in a length of stay between one to 14 days and um, up to a quarter percent of patients will require ICU care during this balance back. So we really wanna try to avoid this at all costs. So um, Dr. Bargazing company did a uh, systematic review in 2017 looking at um, transperineal, uh, they looked at all different uh, biopsy approaches, prostate biopsy, and uh, they kind of tried to quantify it. And some, some um, aspects or side effects of the biopsy are hard to quantify just because the ranges reported are very wide. So it's tough to compare. Hematuria, for example, is all over the place. But rectal bleeding is clearly uh, a non-issue in the transperineal biopsy group. Uh, hemospermia, also hard to quantify and maybe a function of the number of cores taken. Um, urinary retention. Okay, urinary retention is recognized as uh, being higher in the transperineal cohort, but even though they listed in a range between 1.7 and 11%, um, I think it, it, it tends to lean towards a lower number in most of the series that are published. Um, with respect to infectious complications, clearly transrectal approach, the traditional approach uh, fares much more poorly uh, with much higher uh, infectious complication rates and hospital readmissions tend to be higher after transrectal approach. So I want to look at several series. There are several large series that have been published, and I, I think they're very representative of what um, the complication profile is. So looking at the infectious complications, there is a, um, uh, this first series that I list is the uh, Australian series. They, they um, had um, 
almost uh, 1,400 uh, transperineal biopsies, of whom um, three quarters of the patients were only given one dose of cefazolin, uh, and they report zero readmissions for infectious complications. So that's obviously an um, excellent outcome. Uh, Stefanova, this is the Toronto series. They also had approximately 1,300 patients. And again, they also use one dose cefuroxime or cephalexin. And they report 0.3% uh, of infectious complications, which consisted of three UTIs, which were treated empirically, meaning no culture was available, and only one culture-proven UTI that was treated with antibiotics. And again, none of the patients require readmission. So also very low number of infectious complications. Uh, Ristalidol, that's, um, that's a US series of approximately 1,000 transperineal cases. Uh, initially, they started off giving uh, one dose of cephalexin, and then uh, they later transitioned to omitting antibiotics altogether. So this is excellent antibiotic stewardship. And again, they also report that 0.3% infectious complications, um, none of which really were culture proven, but because they were treated with antibiotics, they had to be classified as such. And um, uh, again, they also report no infectious uh, readmissions. Uh, Pepe et al, that's, uh, that's an Italian series. They have a very large series of 3,000 cases. And uh, at that time, they use uh, levofloxacin for three days. And uh, they report a 2.4% UTI rate. And that's relatively high for most of the series respect, uh, that are published for transperineal biopsies. And um, they had uh, also reported a 0.7% readmission rate for infectious complications. Okay, so with, the rest, with respect to the urinary retention rates, okay, the Australian experience lists 1.8% retention rate, Canadian experience, the Toronto series, 1.6%. The US experience, 0.1%, uh, so not very much uh, urinary retention. And they, the Pepe um, et al., the Italian experience, uh, shows 6.8%, which is slightly higher than, than, than most other series that reported. And again, their retention rates varied uh, with respect to number of cores taken and prostate size with more cores resulting in more retention and larger prostates resulting in more retention. All right, how about cancer detection rates? Okay, cancer detection rates are obviously critical. We do not want to introduce a procedure that, that is inferior to what we currently have because the goal of biopsy is diagnosing clinically significant prostate cancer. So, Bristow um, and Alt, they, um, uh, initially started off with a template that required uh, 16 cores and then ultimately adopted a template that that uh, sampled 10 sectors or 10 areas in the prostate. And their detection of any cancer type was uh, overall 60%, although when they adopted the new template, it rose to 70%, 71%. Uh, and their clinically significant cancer defined as greater than grade group 2 was 40%, which is also very good. Uh, and even higher for the newer template that they adopted. The Toronto series, um, they used a, a, a 10 core template. And again, their any cancer detection rate was uh, 50% with clinically significant prostate cancer detected in 30% of patients. Now they compared themselves to their previous series of transrectal biopsies. So this is a, you know, a direct comparison of transperineal versus transrectal and they noted to be, to have better overall cancer detection rate in the transperineal group as opposed to transrectal group. Uh, importantly, they detected approximately 10% of cancers uh, in the anterior uh, segment of the prostate, which was exclusively anterior. There are many cancers that are present in both posterior and anterior um, areas of the prostate, but there are some that are unique to being anterior, and these are the cancers that would have been missed using transrectal approach. So this is the, another advantage of transperineal approach. Uh, and then Omar et al. Uh, did a, um, a literature review and they listed series between 2014 and 2019. And um, again, their overall cancer detection rate varied, but was generally between 42% and in some series even 100%. And uh, clinically significant uh, prostate cancer was detected between 10 and 57%. And again, they, they confirmed the incidence of anterior cancers at about nine and a half percent. So again, this number keeps coming up. Approximately 10% of anterior cancers are detected with transperineal biopsy, and that's, that's, that's the cancers that would have been missed. So the cancer detection rates are adequate, and they're same or better than for transrectal approach. 
some concerns about the learning curve. Uh, th those numbers are a little bit hard to come by, but um, in the Toronto series, they um, described, uh, uh, you know, gaining confidence in approximately four to six weeks of doing these biopsies, but that really didn't quantify the number of procedures performed. Um, Dr. Wu et al. and uh, Armin George and company uh, performed a uh, survey of Michigan Urologic Regional Collaborative and Pennsylvania Urologic, I'm sorry, of music, Michigan Urologic Surgical Improvement Collaborative and Pennsylvania Urologic Regional Collaborative. These are uh, quality improvement collaboratives. So they surveyed all the uh, urologists that uh, perform biopsies and of those that perform transperineal biopsies, they asked uh, what they felt was a, a fair number of cases before they felt comfortable doing this procedure. And uh, the um, answer was uh, approximately 10 cases or less. So that's encouraging. That's not a very long number, a large number of cases to be comfortable with this procedure. Um, this is not very different from transrectal biopsy, uh, which um, was reported at about 10 cases to gain confidence. So learning curve should not really be a uh, prohibitive uh, factor in adopting this approach. Um, there are excellent um, resources online and I would encourage everybody to go to Michigan Urologic uh, Surgical Improvement Collaborative website and they have a ton of resources uh, ranging from checklists to templates to um, how-tos and uh, so it's, there's a lot of support out there. So room setup. What, what, what do you need? You need you need a patient in lithotomy position. So um, this is how my room is set up. I have an ultrasound probe. I have a, a more recently, I have a stretcher with uh, stirrups attached to it. And I have a table with all my equipment. Uh, previously, I used to do this biopsy on an exam table that rises and lowers that had uh, stirrups built into it. But basically any kind of uh, bed or stretcher with stirrups would be sufficient. What probe do you use? Um, there's a lot of uh, probe designs out there. So you have um, an Enfire probe, for example, that's this probe um, in blue uh, that um, scans through the prostate. Um, and, uh, you know, that when the needle travels from the tip of the biopsy probe, uh, that's how you visualize the needle. Then you have um, a biplanar or side fire probe, which um, visualizes um, prostate. That would be this probe over here. In, in sagittal and transverse uh, planes. And um, this, this is ideal where the needle travels from through the side of the probe as opposed to off the tip of the probe. Uh, and then you have this probe, which I think is the probe that's ideal for transperineal approach. This has a, a long linear array of sagittal uh, beam, and then it has a um, transverse beam as well. So you can visualize the prostate in two dimensions uh, by switching between the two. And what this long linear array does, um, it, it allows you to visualize the tissue between the skin and the prostate. So it allows you to visualize the perineal structures and, um, and also it allows you to track your needle as it travels parallel the probe towards the prostate. Um, positioning. Okay, so patient is placed in the lithotomy position. In my practice, that's done by a nurse. Um, patient's uh, scrotum is taped out of the way and uh, skin is prepped. I use betadine, by, but uh, chlorhexidine prep would, uh, would also be adequate. So when patients come or when I counsel my patients uh, about prostate biopsy, transferring prostate biopsy, I say it's like going to the dentist because they're always concerned this is going to be painful. And I say, it's like going to the dentist. It's gonna be a little bit uncomfortable when I inject the, the, the numbing agent. And uh, once that kicks in, you should be pretty good. And um, so it's, I think the, the crux of, of, the, of transperineal biopsy is being able to, especially biopsy in the office, is being able to provide uh, local analgesia. And uh, in order to do that, we need to kind of better understand the anatomy and the innervation. So this is a, a male perineum. This is um, uh, uh, a pelvic plexus or a hypogastric plexus that supplies the um, innervation to the capsule of the prostate. Okay, this is the levator ani muscle, and this is the the rhabdus sphincter over here, and this is um, uh, deep transverse muscles of the perineum, and then there's another set of superficial uh, transverse muscles of the perineum, and again the the 
uh, pudendal nerve and uh, superficial and deep perineal nerves are the nerves that supply uh, these structures over here. So we need to focus on being able to uh, interrupt signaling from the pelvic plexus, the um, superficial and deep uh, perineal nerves or the pudendal nerve. So there's various um, approaches to transperineal anesthesia that are adopted um, or described. And um, this is a particularly good one that I find. Um, so you need to obviously use a lot of lubricant because uh, probe insertion and manipulation is uncomfortable. You anesthetize the skin for your needles to travel through, okay? And then it's basically prostate capsule, skin, and everything in between. Okay, so the prostate capsule, you know, uh, is supplied by the peripheral branches of the pelvic plexus, okay, as, as I showed you in the previous picture. And then the in between stuff, the levator ani and the bulbar cavernosus muscles uh, are the ones that would cause a lot of pain when penetrated with a needle. Uh, they are fed by the pudendal nerve. Um, and uh, deep transverse perineal muscles is uh, fed by the perineal nerve. Uh, and so, you know, how, how do we anesthetize those locations? So this is a schematic um, proposed by Wang et al. And what they look at is uh, placing the needle uh, in a trajectory about one and a half centimeters above and two centimeters lateral to the anus and looking in, uh, in sagittal plane. Uh, this is actually parasagittal. So this would be the levator muscle this would be the apex of, uh, you know, the prostate. So they would perform an injection where these black dots are uh, superficial to the levator muscle and deep to the levator muscle. And they found that to be an excellent way to anesthetize patient for um, in-office local analgesia. Um, this is uh, another article uh, by Kuba um, and that, look, that describes uh, periapical triangle. So periapical triangle is a space that's lined by the apex of the prostate, um, rhabdo sphincter, and levator ani muscle. And this is a deep transverse perineal, perineal muscle with a, um, with a rectum below. Uh, so they describe a trajectory where the needle would travel here and, um, and they would inject the bolus in this periapical triangle. Additionally, what, so if you look um, at the prostate on pause here, uh, what you would see is even though the periapical triangle is over here, sometimes if you need to reach the lateral or anterior part of the aspect, uh, part of the prostate, you would need to travel uh, through the levator ani. And so you would need to anesthetize additionally levator ani for the patient to tolerate those biopsies a little bit better. So um, again, this is uh, kind of stepping through from midline to sagittal. So you would have the rhabdo sphincter, the urethra, um, and the prostate and you would step to the side and you would see the DVC and, um, and then uh, further to the side, you would see the levator. You know, so you, they would inject their uh, points, their injection points would be right here and right here. And I generally agree with that approach. I, I tend to inject my um, anesthetic a little bit higher, not quite at the base, but just, just uh, maybe half a centimeter above and I injected anterior or superficial to and deep to the levator in a muscle and I want to see it track superiorly because that gives, that assures me that uh, a wider field is, um, is affected. And uh, I think uh, you, you get excellent analgesia that way. Uh, other sites that are described in the literature for uh, local analgesia include the pelvic plexus block, which is at the tip of the seminal vesicles, um, or the periprostatic block, which is, you know, you would traditionally, during transrectal biopsy, go transrectally and block in this area. Um, and uh, this would be the transperineal version of this one. So there's some um, comparisons in the literature on uh, how well these blocks work. So they use visual analog scale to assess this. And um, again, they, there's different block types that have been compared, but you can see generally the visual analog scale doesn't really go beyond three and a half too much. And this is for the periapical triangle um, or uh, perineal skin in the apex or uh, periprostatic nerve block. And you can see again, uh, 
during the analgesia infiltration and during the actual procedure itself, the numbers pretty much stay below 3.6 looks like the highest and that's for the visual analog scale. Now in the Toronto series, they actually looked at 500 patients and uh, again, they did them lo under local anesthesia and they used skin and periprostatic block and they compared um, various um, parts of the transperineal procedure. And again, the highest discomfort was at the time of skin infiltration where you raise a wheel in order to uh, be able to place your uh, access needle. Uh, then the next um, next most uncomfortable aspect was the periprostatic infiltration. Uh, and then after that, it was the actual biopsies themselves and the probe manipulation. Okay. Access type. How do you get to the prostate? So you can, you can have a, um, a grid. Uh, you can have a... Um, so you, which means that the needle travels through its individual separate puncture every time you're collecting a core of the prostate. Um, or you can have a trocar or an access needle that then allows you to pass the needle multiple times without penetrating the skin each time you pass the needle. So this is kind of a fan type, um, freehand fan type uh, access where the trocar would, would, would be positioned in one spot and then you would simply angle the needle in order to sample the desired area of the prostate. And this would be just individual kind of punctures in the skin to get to the areas that you need. Uh, let's see. Okay, so this is different, different access options, okay? So you could have a, your, um, your stepper and the grid and that, that's really more common to be done when patient is asleep in the operating room. And you can do that template mapping where you can have, you know, step, uh, uh, the segments can be, you know, as, as low as five millimeters apart. And you can really map out the prostate in three dimensions really well. Uh, but then again, it would require sedation or a general anesthesia. Um, you could have this, this is called a precision point. This is probably the, the most widely used um, transperineal uh, device and what it does is it has a, a, um, a clip a, and a, um, a rail system that attaches on a ultrasound probe and then it has a, a, um, a carriage with uh, apertures that um, then penetrates the perineum and anchors it in place and you can choose the depth of your needle of how close you want to be uh, to the um, ultrasound probe or how far away, depending on where you want to sample the prostate. And what it does, what it allows you to do is it allows you to track the, the needle real time um, as, you, as you move your probe. So you don't have to keep looking for your needle because you know, the needle has to be in view ultrasound beam. And um, if you're doing it freehand and they're not aligned, it's a little bit challenging. So this solves that problem. Uh, and so that's uh, a, a tool that could be used during freehand um, coaxial uh, access. Other coaxial accesses, accesses are just simply, you know, um, needles, co uh, hollow needles through which you can insert the, um, the trocar. There are some, um, so precision point is a disposable device. There are some reusable devices uh, that are out there. And uh, what I typically use is I simply use a, an angiocatheter. Uh, it's a little bit more challenging, uh, but uh, once you get the hang of it, which is really not that hard, um, I think it's, it's cost-effective and, and uh, very versatile. Okay, transperineal templates. It's a little bit of a wild west out there uh, as far as the number of templates that different uh, urologists use and, and have, they have been published in literature. But there are two kind of most common, I would say, that, that have emerged. And the, the two are the, the Ginsburg Protocol, unrelated to... Uh, you know, my name, my last name is Ginsburg, spelled differently, but this is the Ginsburg protocol that's um, been kind of developed by the um, by the UK and Australian guys. And um, what it does is it divides prostate into sectors. Okay, so just focusing on one side, let's say the left side, there's anterior sector, mid sector, and posterior sector. Okay, and um, in in sagittal views, that's how it looks. The anterior sector measures uh, samples this area mid-sector this area and posterior sectors down below. And if the prostate is greater than, let's say, 30 cc's, then you may have to add a basal sector. 
to make sure you comprehensively sample the prostate. And each sector collects four cores, and some biopsy templates divide sectors into the medial sector or the lateral sector. Or, and um, so uh, the number of cores ranges depending on the prostate size. Uh, the alternative to this template is the uh, modified Barzell template, which is, uh, uh, this is from the Michigan Urologic uh, Surgical Improvement Collaborative Group, but it basically uh, has 12 cores or 12 areas that need to be biopsied. And again, it focuses um, on the transition zone just to pretty much sample it. And then, you know, preferentially it uh, collects um, samples from the peripheral zone, which is where most cancers are located. And uh, it also incorporates the lateral horns, which I think are really important to biopsy. Um, this is the template that I use. I like to simplify it. To, I simplified it, and this is the FAT template, the um, Philadelphia Hybrid Anatomic Transperineal Template. But basically, it only has eight sectors. It, at the apex, it has four sectors, anterior and posterior on each side. And at the base, it has four sectors, anterior and posterior on each side. And I take several cores from each sector, two from the anterior sectors and three from the posterior sectors. Obviously, if prostate is really big, I may increase the number of cores. But on average, I collect 12 cores from my um, FAT template. Uh, so what, what's required uh, for the actual biopsy? So I don't well prep my patients. Um, I use either betadine or you can use chlorhexidine prep uh, to, to um, cleanse the perineum. Uh, you have several syringes of 1% lidocaine, and you have a 23-gauge needle, and that's to anesthetize the skin. You have a 14-gauge needle, and that's, that's my uh, trocar or my angiocath that I use for access to the perineum. You have a 5-inch spinal needle that then allows you to uh, deliver anesthetic uh, deeper. Um, and then I use an 18-gauge, um, 20-centimeter uh, biopsy gun. These guns... Um, uh, come in different lengths. I think the shorter length actually is easier to maneuver. It's stiffer, so it's easier to angle towards the desired location. Then you have a, a union, the silk tape to, to um, tape the scrotum out of the way. So I have a, a short, oops, I have a short video that I wanted to show. Does it let me pause it? That doesn't look right. Okay, so we'll watch the video and then I'll try to pause it if I can. So patients in lithotomy position, we have a probe insertion and this is what you visualize on the screen as you insert the probe. So let me see if it let me pause now. Great. So prostate, rectum, this would be the apex of the prostate. Oops. I apologize for this, guys. So urethra. So this is uh, me injecting local anesthetic into the skin, raising a wheel in order to numb up a small area for the trocar placement. I also injected further in uh, to anesthetize the tract. So then I use my 14-gauge angiocath to place inside the perineum to give me access into the perineum. Now, it's really important to be orthogonal and aligned with your probe as you're, inject as you're placing these um, trocars, because if they're angled, then you'll, get, you'll have a hard time finding your uh, biopsy needle during the procedure itself. So they really have to be orthogonal or right along the side of the probe. This is the... Um, 25 gauge spinal needle for the local analgesia. 
And again, we're going to use the periapical triangle type, slightly modified because I go just a teeny bit lateral to that. So again, prostate, this dark structure is the levator ani muscle. And you puff uh, some uh, analgesia, some uh, lidocaine as you advance the needle, then you inject superficial to levator. And then you inject, and then you inject deep too. And as you see, I'm constantly scanning through to visualize my needle. And you can see the anesthetic tracking superiorly, uh, therefore blocking the entire surface of the prostate. And that's it. That's the, that's the extent of local anesthetic. And we do the same thing on the other side. So levator ani, just anterior to levator ani or just superficial and then just deep, and you can see that tracking. And again, it's just at the medial aspect of levator ani. And this is my biopsy gun. Um, biopsy, and again, we use the, the fat template like I described earlier. So here we're sampling the anterior aspect of the prostate. So that was the transition zone. And then we insert the needle again. And again, it's a very a relatively dynamic exercise. I scan through my needle. This is the lateral anterior um, pr uh, sample. And then we go anterior, uh, but base, towards the base. And then at the base, but lateral, more laterally. Now we're going to focus on the posterior apical zone. And you can really see the, the degrees of freedom that you have available. You can angle the needle down and you really want to sample in this area. And you can see the needle, needle trajectory collecting a full core. Whereas if we were doing this transrectally, going in this direction, only part of the core would be involved with the peripheral zone. So. And then at the end, you know, we have um, individual samples that, uh, or individual sectors that are submitted. Okay, great. So, and then once you master that approach, you, there are other uh, things you can do. So by, by kind of uh, being able to do transperineal biopsy, you're also play, able to place transperineal, transperineal fiducial markers uh, for patients that are undergoing uh, radiation therapy and uh, space or hydrogel uh, product uh, is also injected transperineally and again it's just a natural extension of your skill set uh, once you know how to do transperineal biopsy to be able to um, inject uh, the hydrogel and that's to to improve um, or to decrease rectal toxicity at the time of um, uh, radiation treatments for prostate cancer. So um, you know sometimes it could be a little bit intimidating because um, uh, some it's perceived that new equipment is required, but many times this equipment already exists in our institutions. So ask the question, do you guys have a brachytherapy program at your institution or did you at one point? And if yes, then chances are you have a biplanar probe, an endocavity probe with a linear side fire array, which is uh, the ideal probe for transperineal biopsy. And likely you have a stepper. Uh, so borrow it for your radiation oncology colleagues and, and, and give it a try. Uh, so, and then again, you can do both transperineal biopsy, fiducial markers, and spacer hydrogel through the transperineal approach. This picture is of, of, um, of the uh, ultrasound that I started with. I borrowed it from my radiation oncology colleagues, and then when it died, then I upgraded to the newer ultrasound that I have. But, um, you know, the equipment may very well be there already. Just ask around. So I just wanted to share kind of our Einstein series. This is not published series, but um, we started uh, late 2017. Uh, we currently have about 180 patients. Uh, the age, median age of our biopsies is 
HF63, PSA 6.2. And again, we use the, uh, we kind of went through several permutations of templates, but ultimately settled on this PAT template, which uh, has eight sectors. And on average, we collect between 16 and 24 cores per biopsy. So over 77% of my biopsies are done in the office. I pretty much exclusively do transperineal biopsies now. Um, and uh, less than a quarter are done in the OR, and that's really a patient request. Uh, most of my biopsies are done for diagnostic purposes, and uh, about 16% are done uh, for active surveillance. Uh, I have stopped giving antibiotics, so 85% of, of my patients receive no antibiotics at all, zero, okay? And earlier on, I gave some antibiotics um, when we, our protocol was to give IM Rosef and times one. So cancer detection rates. So cancer detection rates are really hard to compare because you really can't really compare them without um, controlling for different variables. So basically, if, just, if I just look at the biopsy-naive patients, so I exclude active surveillance, I exclude patients with prior negative biopsy. So this is just biopsy-naive patients, just the ones I do in an in office, okay, not in the, or under local anesthesia. My overall cancer detection rate is 73%, which I think is, is pretty good. And my clinically significant cancer detection rate is 49%, okay. And so I think that uh, compares well with other transperineal series and uh, is uh, superior to the transrectal approach. Uh, with respect to the complications, I think this is really important. I, I, um, I track my complications closely and of all the patients that I've done, I had two patients that had syncope. One had syncope hours after the procedure, one had syncope immediately after the procedure. So two syncopes. I had one patient that could not tolerate transperineal procedure, but I then offered that patient transrectal procedure and he couldn't tolerate that either. Uh, so we ended up doing them, him in the operating room. Uh, I had one patient that had hematuria with clot retention that was my, within my first 10 biopsies that I've done transperineally, and he did require admission and hand irrigation. Um, but that's the only hematuria requiring um, an intervention that I had. And I had one patient, one patient, they had dysuria, and we treated him with antibiotics. Dysuria went away, but he, he had a culture prior to antibiotics, which was negative. But, you know, because he improved with antibiotics, we presume it's infectious. So one patient out of 178 that had um, um, a UTI-like scenario. So overall, I think the outcomes, cancer control, complica uh, cancer detection rate, complications, and um, ability to avoid antibiotics are really attractive for this approach. So in summary, this can be done in the office. It can be very well tolerated. Cancer detection rate is on par or most commonly better than transrectal approach. Uh, you get unique access to the anterior prostate the, and you have unique access to the apex. You practice excellent antibiotic stewardship because you can definitely omit antibiotics for most of these procedures. There are no sepsis uh, or very low amount of sepsis reported for this uh, approach. Rectal bleeding is a non-issue. And uh, there are multiple access techniques so you can find which works best for you. And most importantly, all the cool kids are doing it. And here's some COVID humor for you since we're on quarantine and we don't travel anymore. Um, I will uh, ask you to scan this slide and give your feedback uh, on how you like the presentation so that um, uh, UCSF can continue to improve their series. And uh, I will take any questions. I'll unshare my screen. So thanks very much, Dr. Ginsberg. I think we do have some, some time for a couple of questions. Uh, one that came up was um, with regards to when you're performing these either in the office or the OR, do you generally prefer to do these freehanded using a stepper? Uh, do you sometimes feel that, I'm, you know, sometimes the stepper may limit your mobility? And um, do you think that one's easier to learn than the other? So I think, uh, excellent question, and I, I perform all my biopsy freehand uh, just because I like to have the degrees of free, freedom and I find the stepper uh, somewhat cumbersome. Uh, is it easier to learn with the stepper? Not necessarily. I think what makes it easier to learn is uh, this precision point um, system that can attach to your uh, biopsy probe and what it does is it uh, allows you to visualize the needle as you biopsy at all times, and it eliminates the variable where you have to scan um, sagittally to find your needle. So, I mean, once you, once, uh, you gain enough experience, you, you can pretty much always find your needle, but 
I think when you're initially starting out, this could be a little frustrating. So um, I do prefer freehand. I, I am not a fan of, of a stepper, but stepper is appropriate in, in some situations. And obviously stepper is used for um, spacer hydrogel injection. So um, you should be familiar with how to use that. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, very much. And then uh, just one more. Um, was kind of with regard to uh, fusion biopsies. Um, are you performing, you know, fusion biopsies? Uh, obviously, with this, it most likely be, you know, cognitive. But are there other types of, of biopsies available, or fusion biopsies, and um, are you using them? Uh, so um, there are a lot of technologies out there that uh, are making themselves compatible with transperineal approach. Obviously, fusion biopsy um, technologies emerged uh, at the height of uh, transrectal. Uh, biopsy uh, era, if you will. So uh, a lot of them are paired with transrectal uh, probe uh, techniques, but there are, many of them are converting and restructuring to, to be applied transperineally as well. And um, uh, I do, so I, I have a transrectal fusion system, which I use rarely, uh, but I, uh, what I do is I um, do cognitive fusion transperineally. And I think I what I find is cognitive fusion transperineally is more intuitive because patient, it's symmetric, patient is uh, in lithotomy position and um, the images of the MRI uh, naturally translate to the lithotomy um, uh, transperineal approach. So uh, I do do cognitive fusion, but there's a lot of technology for um, true fusion to be done transperineally. And then uh, I think just one one final one that just kind of came in here was uh, comparing, you know, your transrectal to your um, transperineal experience. Uh, how do you find that patients tolerate one versus the other in the office? Is it similar? Um, I really, I really think it's similar and possibly even better because I have, um, uh, you know, a lot of areas where I can inject the anesthetic transperineally. Transrectally, I typically go through the rectum and I inject it, you know, like at the base of the prostate, between the prostate and the sem. But uh, transperineally, you know, I can really thoroughly anesthetize it. And the, the most discomfort, almost all the series report that the most discomfort is experienced when the anesthetic is injected. So if you prepare the patient adequately and you explain to them, you know, this is going to be a, a pinch and a burn, it's going to hurt a little bit, but once it kicks in, you're going to be great. I think the patient expectations are set and, and I think they do really well. So in my experience, I think they, they tolerate it similarly, if not better for the transperineal approach. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this talk. And um, I guess I'll thank you CSF and uh, kick it back to you as well. Thank you, Christy. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.